Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 8. We are reading verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for the gift of your spirit. You have sent him that he would lead us into all truth. And so we come dependent and weak, asking God that you illumine our minds and lead us in your way. Teach us your truth. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Several years ago, a close friend who grew up in England, recommended to me Wallace Stegner's novel, Crossing to Safety. He expressed it was his favorite of all novels, which is high praise for a Britishman. As one who enjoyed literature, I was surprised to receive the recommendation because I had never heard of Wallace Stegner, was completely unfamiliar with his novels, and so I reluctantly went on to Amazon and purchased my first copy. The novel didn't disappoint. My friend is a trustworthy guide, and it's become one of my own favorite books of literature. It's a beautifully written story of two couples and their relationship through time. It tracks with real human experience. The two families meet in Madison, Wisconsin, where the husbands were training to be English professors, receiving jobs in different areas of the country, different corners. They were separated but maintained communication throughout the years, and there was also an annual vacation in which they visited a family farm in Vermont. The course of their lives are normal. They are like yours and like mine. They are full of twists and turns. There are heartaches and there are homecomings. There are joys and sorrows. There is illness and there is suffering. There is disappointment and there are dreams realized. It's a novel of the stuff of real life. But in the end, Charity, one of the main actors, she's an accomplished matriarch who controlled almost every moment of her life, finally dies. And it is at that point, at the close of the novel, that the narrator comments this. He says, if we could have foreseen the future during those good old days in Madison where all of this began, we might not have had the nerve to venture into it. In other words, if they had known all the sufferings that lied ahead of them, all the heartache and all the tragedy, all the sadness, 
the setbacks. It may have undone them. And they wouldn't have had the courage to venture into everything that lie ahead. And friends, your life and my life, it's no different. Because we all have a measure of hardship and difficulty. What Paul says in Romans 8 is that our present world has been subjected to futility. And he uses that word in a very purposive way that it comes from the book of Ecclesiastes. And there the word futility refers to the disorder of the creation, how things are not what they are supposed to be. It refers to the folly of human wisdom and it refers to the absurdity of our experience and the confusing nature of our experience of life in this world. And Paul then depicts in verse 23 that because of this futility, the whole creation is groaning. And he says it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. It's graphic imagery. But it's not only the creation that's groaning because of futility. It's also those who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Those who have received the Spirit of God have been united to Jesus, who share in his death and in his resurrection, whose communion has been restored with God. Yes, we have joy and we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we're also told that we are groaning because of this futility. And it is this futility, this disorder, that is the regular order of our lives. It's what characterizes week by week and year by year our experience. But it's in the midst of this heavy discussion of futility and groaning that Paul also introduces us to the Christian word hope. And to go out into life, it is this hope. If we are to venture out into the world, if we are to endure through all the things that befall us. It is this hope, this concept that's critical to our success. And so it's important for you and for me and all of us as a community of faith to unpack and to own what it means to have this Christian hope. There's nothing more important as what Paul is expressing here in Romans 8. And so we'll consider four parts of it this morning. First, we'll consider hope's cause. Then we'll look into its context, its content, and finally, hope's conflict. And so let's look at each of these. First, we'll consider the context of our hope. Paul begins in verse 18 saying this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And here he sets the context of Christian hope. That is the garden where Christian hope flourishes and grows. It is the soil of suffering. That Christian hope is not nurtured in any other place beyond the present experience of the sufferings of the present time. The suffering does not exclusively refer to persecution. But rather what Paul is capturing here is that broad consideration of life in a bruised and a broken world. It is life in the world that is now thoroughly disordered 
because humans rebelled and turned against God. And that every part of that life has now been uh, corrupted. It has been subjected to death and decay that futility characterizes it. The context of hope is the world of futility. It's only in that world of futility that hope is nurtured, that hope is born. And so Christian hope is born and it's nurtured in the thorns and the thistles of your vocational callings. As you go about what God has assigned you to do in this life, as the sweat falls from your brow, as we learn in Genesis 3, as we experience the frustrations of the works of our hands, as we toil under the sun, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, it's here in that context, in that difficulty, in that rigor, that hope is born and nurtured. Hope is born and it's nurtured in the rigors of human relationships. The alienation and the frustration experienced between husbands and wives. The alienation and the frustration experienced between parents and children, sons and daughters, fellow Christians in the church. Yes, it's in the context of all of that difficulty that we see in the very first pages of the Bible between Adam and Eve, between Cain and Abel. Yes, it's in all of the relational betrayal, the relational disappointment, the relational disagreement that we experience that Christian hope is born and that it's nurtured. Christian hope is born and it's nurtured in your own personal failings and shortcomings. It grows as we stare into our half-hearted love for God, our deep and our double motivations for serving God, and our secret thoughts that we don't particularly want published. It's in the midst of all of that discouragement and disappointment with ourselves that Christian hope actually grows. And Christian hope finally is born and it's nurtured in the tragedies that strike us, the tragedies that strike our communities and our families and our world, in the life of teenagers that are cut short, in the wake of addictions and abuse, in the injustice of the justice system, in the death of those we love. It's there in that sacred ground where Christian hope is born and nurtured. And so what maturity requires of you as a Christian is not that we avoid sadness and tragedy. Because what the Apostle Paul is arguing here is that you can't. That the present order of things in this life, because of our turn against God, because of that rebellion, is disorder. It is this suffering. And so what maturity requires of us is an acquaintance with it, that we understand the sadness and the suffering of our world. And friends, we live in a culture that's determined to paste over that suffering and that sadness, pretending that it's really not that bad or that it can be placated with entertainment or money or some other way. And the difficult task that God assigns to you and that he assigns to me is that we have to stand in the midst of that world, seeing all of its bruises and seeing all of its brokenness, 
even knowing and experiencing those things ourselves. And we must allow that groaning, that deep experience of futility to nurture and grow hope in us, to direct us to hope. This is the context of Christian hope. But secondly, we also see its cause in verse 18. Paul begins with a verb, I consider. It may seem like a fairly innocent word at first, but it's an important word in Paul's letter because he's used it on several different occasions. He uses it first in chapters 3 and chapter 4 where he says God considers, or it's also translated God counts. Because in those chapters, what we are told is that God counts us righteous through faith in Jesus. That God considers you righteous through faith in Jesus. Not because of your works, not because of anything that you can boast in, not because of an accomplishment or an achievement, some claim that you can then put on God. No, rather you have a secure standing with God because God considers you righteous through his son. Paul then turns and uses the same word. He now says that he does the considering. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And this is the logic where Paul's argument is leading us is that those who have been considered, those who have been counted righteous by faith, then learn to approach life from a particular and a very unique perspective, that we now learn to consider that the sufferings of this world don't compare to the glory that will be received. Because we've been considered righteous by God, we can consider life differently. And friends, this is the cause of Christian hope, that we have a secure anchor in the declaration by God that we have been granted a righteousness not our own, that belongs to Jesus, and that in Jesus we are right with him, and that there's nothing that can alter that declaration. And so we have a firm and secure hold on the future, and so we can consider and look at sufferings in the present in a different way. And this is the cause of Christian hope. We can consider our sufferings from a certain perspective because we've been considered righteous by God. And we must always hold on to this. But third, we also see something about the content of Christian hope. In verse 18, Paul mentions the word glory, a glory that is to be revealed to us. But it's then down into verses 21 through 23 where that concept of what he's referring to by glory is actually developed. You can find different references in the Bible. Glory can refer to the presence of God, to seeing his face. And that would be true of what Paul is saying here. But it also has a more specific reference. If you follow into verse 21, this is what he writes. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
And so the first part of this glory is a creation that is remade and refashioned, a creation that is restored. It's liberated from its subjection to disorder, to death and decay. And then he follows this further into verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That not only is the creation to be liberated, but chiefly what is to be liberated are the sons and the daughters of God. Those have been made heirs through Jesus, that they will be fully adopted and that adopted will be that adoption will be manifested on the last day when God raises our bodies from the dead that this is the glory that's under discussion by Paul it's the creation made right and correct and that creation restored to its proper function under the ones who were designed to be the lords of that creation those who were designed to govern it as we learn in Genesis 1 and verses 27 and 28, that the purpose of creation is restored when human beings are restored, when their communion with God has been fully made right. And friends, this is the content of Christian hope. And it's important to be very specific about that content, that our destination is not a cloud in the heavens, with figurative golden streets and golden harps and eternal praise songs. Though certainly some of these things will be featured there. That is not the design and the dream of the Bible. That God's big intent, that the big story of the Bible from the first pages to the last is that God created a theater filled with his glory in which everything testified to him. And in the crown of that creation, he made human beings. He made you and he made me. And he set us charge over that creation. And yet we turned against him and we went after our own wisdom rather than his, as we saw in chapter one of this book. And then that entire creation was polluted and it was corrupted by us. And God subjected it in fu to futility for one reason in hope, in hope that he would liberate it. And so friends, heaven is a big deal, but heaven is not the end of the world. The end of the world, what God's big design in all of this story of scripture is that heaven and earth would once again be joined together and fused that God would dwell with his people inside of that theater of his glory. That creation would be regained and restored. You see, God didn't make junk. And he's not going to junk what he made. He's going to restore it to its glory. And he will restore human beings. And he'll bring us back into that proper purpose and goal on the other side of resurrection. And for the Christian, in enduring the sufferings of this life... It's critical for each of us to be very specific and to understand this hope. That this hope doesn't just simply belong to the theologians. That it doesn't belong to biblical scholars. That this hope is your hope. It's your inheritance. 
And your task and your privilege in the Christian life is to explore that inheritance and to know every corner of it. You get to be nosy about the will that God has. What God plans to pass on to you. Whereas that may be inappropriate to explore that with your parents. It's not inappropriate for you to explore this with God. He wants you to know what you will inherit. He wants you to know what's out in front of you, what he has for you, that content. And so get to know it, understand it, appreciate it, relish it. And finally here, though, we also learn about the conflict of Christian hope. As Paul wraps up the paragraph in verses 24 and 25, he says this, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this presents the conflict to us. Hope is not seen. Hope requires patience. And the major temptation that you and I face in the Christian life is that we would run off into the world and attempt to placate or to smooth over our sufferings by turning to another source, another, another means. Patience is hard, and the road that you and I have to travel down the path of futility is long, and then it closes with death. And so we experience the conflict the conflict of hope. It requires incredible patience and it requires believing something that we do not see. And so the pressing question for us this morning is how do we endure? How do you endure inside of all of that futility, inside of all of that groaning, inside of all the ways that our broken and bruised world brings suffering into our lives. Paul's resounding answer is that we must meditate upon that future revelation, that glory that is to be revealed, that glory that God will bring for those who he has counted righteous, that glory of a creation restored and regained and remade and renewed. The glory of a body raised from dust and put back together again, assembled in the way that it was always to be. The glory of restored communion with God, freed from our half-hearted motivations, freed from our laziness, freed from our sloth. Yes, it's all of that glory. It's that glory that causes us to endure. That's how we make it that we have been adopted by God. Yes, we are truly sons and daughters through the true son Jesus who laid down his life. Through faith in him, you belong in his family. And yet Paul says here very clearly that the full adoption will be manifested on that last day in the raising of your body. And friends, this will be and it is that certain gift that lies ahead that this is what we cling to in faith. 
And this is how we endure. And this is how we experience the conflict. That yes, we choose to believe. And in the midst of our own struggles, we turn to God and we say, yes, Lord, help me in my own unbelief. Sustain my weak and my failing faith. Help me to endure this conflict. And we can call out asking for help in the midst of the conflict because we know that the cause of our hope is secure. That the cause of our hope is that we have been counted righteous by faith. That we have a gift from God that cannot be revoked. And so that hope belongs to us. And that we can then endure the context of hope. That is the present order of things filled with death and decay. Because friends, we're holding out for the content. Everything that God has. And we've seen the small preview that on that very tired and weary Sunday morning, several thousand years ago, as disciples go to grieve their master, and he was not there, the preview of your hope is the resurrected Jesus. And one day, he will return. And when he returns, the creation itself will be raised to new life. And you and all those who have gone before, who've held fast to hope in Jesus, will share in his inheritance. Friends, this is the strong medicine that God gives to us in the midst of all of our sufferings. That is stronger than any treatment that you can find in the hospital. It's stronger than any sage advice. It's stronger than any reconciliation we can experience in this life. That this is the strong medicine of God for the healing of the world. And so look to him in hope. Hold fast to him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that the wrongs and the evil of our world are often so strong. And we feel them and we know them. We're reminded of them day by day and week by week. But yet we're not overwhelmed by them because of the overwhelming hope that you have supplied in the vision of things made right, of creation renewed and restored, of our bodies renewed to their purpose as well. God, capture us with these things. Draw us into the vision of all that you have planned for us and remind us of the security of these things that's been established by your Son and in him alone. We pray in his name and for his sake. Amen.